So we need to think on our feet as well. And I think doing it practically, having this awareness of like, well, when I feel joyful, I feel this. When I feel fearful, this happens. And then we can start to trace the feeling back. Well, was when the first time you felt like that? What happened there? And then there's a memory because the subconscious is always, always, always trying to keep us safe. Hey guys, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. I am so, so excited today because I have an actual wizard with me, Alistair Ballantyne. Thank you so much for joining me today because you continue to educate and inspire me every time I get to speak with you. When I first connected with you, it was in a clubhouse room where you hosted this amazing, amazing meditation where we walked through different doors. And I just remember so much clarity afterwards. You are just an absolute delight. Your learn your emotional language room is probably one of my favorite rooms because you teach us how our body is really our subconscious mind and everything we experience, we feel first, which is a really different concept that no one talks about, but it's so, so true. So just thank you for all that you do and welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm, it's a real privilege to be here. I'm so happy that we can connect and have this discussion. So I'm just ready to go. And the language of emotion is something that's so important because we're taught to stuff it down in one way or another. And it starts to come out in all of these weird, wild and wonderful ways. But like you say, it's connected so much through the the body language as well so if we can start to understand that code then we can loosen things up a bit and just be a bit more freer in body and mind exactly i think it really starts in childhood where when we're young we express our emotions in different ways and it's normal but then the world kind of tells us all the reasons we shouldn't and it teaches us to suppress them through superhero films and the fairy tales we grow up learning it's men can't have emotions and women are the damsel in distress and the emotions we have make us weak and we need the man to come and save us and the man has all this pressure to save everyone with no ability or outlet to express themselves and that's why what i i believe that what you're doing is really helping us especially as adults to reconnect to that person we were before the world told us who we had to be I'm, you, I couldn't have said it any better myself because this is this is the thing that our exposure to media really does a number on us in in that regard because we we're living in a time where the paradigm between what masculinity and femininity is is shifting and a lot of the lines are becoming blurred and to I'll try and keep things fairly down the line rather than going off into wizard land but the really all of us have masculine and feminine aspects within us and i have noticed that when it comes to say like for someone is a man but more feminine aspects and that's kind of defined in like being emotionally aware and emotionally articulate and discussing these things there's a repression there and vice versa you know whereas we we should be able to just be be who we are and allow ourselves to accept ourselves for that and there's no shame in that there's no shame in, in us being ourselves and being 
as much of ourselves as possible, it's when we start to try and grind off the edges so we can fit into the nice little rows that society wishes for us to be in that the problems arise. And now here we are, we've had a year and a half of COVID, lots of time to think about stuff and lots of time to confront our own inner things. And it feels like as we're in 2021, we're moving towards something that's more expansive in terms of our thinking and our being and our doing. And we're having these conversations. People are coming out and in advocacy for a number of different things that maybe they wouldn't have felt comfortable to do so before. Because I think the crux of it is, is we all recognize that the world needs to change. And for the world to change, we have to do that on an individual level so we can find that balance within ourselves and then meet each other from a balanced place. We could create so much more than we are possible to do so now. Exactly. It all starts within us. And when we're suppressing our emotions, we're not in touch with who we are. If we don't know who we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want to change the world, no matter how much passion and drive that we have, it's not going to be expressed the same way because within us, we're not connected. We're not feeling, we're not, we're not us. Absolutely. And it's so important that this, we, this... Oh, sorry, my apologies. No, you are good. I, I can listen to you talk all day. So you go first. No, this is why I would rather listen to you. So, <laughs> um, no, sorry. Like you were saying, it's just, I just find that such an exciting concept that, you know, we, we aren't ourselves and it makes me want to start shouting, let's just be ourselves. And, and this idea of the disconnect between who we are truly on the inside and who we project that we are on the outside reminds me of this um, Japanese proverb of the three faces. Are you familiar with this one? I am not. It's, it's saying that we are, we wear three faces. So there's one that we show to the world. The second one we show to our family, friends, those people closest to us. And the third one we only show to ourselves. To me, it feels like, why don't we just have one face? Why can't we have a spectrum of one wearing one face? So we, we're standing in our authenticity and power and our truth and not being afraid to take up space because this is another thing as well. Um, like you said, we met on the clubhouse platform. I hear a lot of people apologizing after they speak. Yes. And to me, that shows that the person is not comfortable taking up the space in that moment when it's absolutely fine to take up space. You know, we take up space we're honoring ourselves. We're honoring that what we're bringing to the situation has some sense of being welcome and just wanting to be heard. But then when we apologize afterwards, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, that shows that there's been a time where it's not been okay, or we've been told that it's not been okay to take up space. And I think that if we allow ourselves to be at peace with just occupying a bit of space, even if it's just that bit of earth beneath our two feet in that moment, then we can start to allow the other things to come up and out rather than spending a lot of energy managing this kind of inner landscape. This, this needs to be in harmony 
And that doesn't mean that it, we should be, you know, the good vibes only brigade or anything like that. That's very harmful. But if we just understand the flow, we understand our rhythm, we understand that what to do when we find certain emotional states presenting themselves to us. It's like with the learn your emotional language circle every Sunday, there's reasons why we have specific questions. Because when we're asking someone, so for example, what does joy feel like to you? And then when they describe it, it's interesting because it will, maybe there's a memory, maybe there's a sensation. And then the next question is always, where, where does this manifest in your body? Because we can start to like pinpoint where these things show up. Um, I'm an EFT practitioner, so the tapping, um, if you've done that before. And the, the idea with that is you work with the meridian system in the body to move stored emotional energy. And I know that sounds a bit out there to some, but at the same time, there is a lot of logic in this because one of the pieces of work that I came across when studying EFT was the work of Dr. Candice Pert, who discovered the opiate receptors in the brain. She was doing research on how emotions were communicated in the body and um, with like the neuropeptides and all this kind of stuff. And her conclusion was the body is the subconscious mind. And that really just was like, okay. And then from there, it was the idea that when we go into an experience of any kind, there's always a physical sensation first. There's always a physical thing, a very short gap before we have the thought and then the response. So if we can deal with the physical thing, we can not only break the cycle, so it's not like someone grabbing the wheel of the car when we're driving quite happily down the road. We can stop that, but we can recognize what it's connected to because the emotions themselves are the messengers of our beliefs. And if we're exploring how to deal with beliefs, I mean, how many times on the internet do we see, you've got to deal with your limiting beliefs. No, 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 but no one ever really says how. Yeah. No one ever really says this is why, you know, it's just like, you just got to leave that behind as if, okay, what do I do? How do I do that? And it's like, well, we deal with the emotions. If we, when we start to decode the emotional language or like that kind of circuit, we can start to take bits out of the circuit so like that electrical charge doesn't get to the destination and we have that process of rewiring but i believe we can do that very practically we don't need to get too hung up in endless neuroscience and psychology papers because there's that other school of thought where we explain everything very reductively and it's this is yes this has been proven in xyz studies studies under these controlled conditions you know, life is not like that it's not like that we may have a selection of experiences that put us in a bracket with a degree of considerations that we have to live with that might not correlate to what the studies say so we need to think on our feet as well and i think doing it practically having this awareness of like well when i feel joyful i feel this when i feel fearful this happens and then we can start to trace the feeling back. Was when the first time you felt like that? What happened there? And then there's a memory because the subconscious is always, always, always trying to keep us safe. 
And safe in the language of the subconscious just means familiar. And familiar isn't always desirable. So, First of all, wow, that was so, so powerful. And it is so true that our emotions are really the responses that we've had in the past. And I remember in one of your rooms, we did contentment. And what does that mean to you? And everyone else in the room was like, this inner state of happiness, this level of peace. And I was like, it seems boring. And what I realized was subconsciously, I was like, I have to continue producing. I can never take a break because then my worth is tied to how much I can do to help others, how much Mm. I can put out there. Mm. But I never was able to take a break and rest because I had all this stress and desire to constantly do more. And although that's great, it's okay to be content and find that inner peace and be happy and just live in the moment. And I had never realized that subconsciously I was putting so much pressure on myself that was causing these insane levels of anxiety where I would literally throw up blood from anxiety. It was extreme anxiety because I had to do more, I had to do more, I had to do more. And I didn't believe in the idea of contentment. And that I think was probably one of the most powerful rooms I've ever, ever been in because it really changed my thought process and trying to explore how do I get rid of that idea of I have to live in this world of toxic productivity. And like you said, no one teaches us how to release those limiting beliefs. And you've been able to do that with the list of questions that help us understand where they come from and what we identify them with. It just blows my mind that you mentioned that room in particular, because I remember that very clearly. And I remember when you said that this contentment feels boring, I was like, I know what you're saying. But but I didn't want to go, hey, because it's not the purpose of the space, but to hear that you've brought it up now, it's okay to talk about it. Of course. Because, because I was a bit like, shit. Oh, sorry. You're good. You're good. I was a bit like, oh no, you know, this is not, this, this is a little red light on the console here for me. Um, because I used to work as a, um, a course manager at a music college. And the idea of produce, 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 produce was something that I saw all the time and something that I had as a student at a music college nearly 20 years ago now, my goodness. Um, This was like ingrained into my mind. If I was not working, I was not of value. And to hear when you were just like, oh, contentment's boring, I was like, hang on a minute, it sounds familiar. (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that it's allowed you to create this shift because like that, the anxiety you've described sounds like so much empathy for that because this anxiety is again, is something we don't talk about enough. We live in the age of anxiety and I think we've lived in the age of anxiety for a lot longer than we'd like to acknowledge um, because we will pacify ourselves and we will pacify ourselves sometimes with producing and being in there because there's when you have vision for the world 
and that vision is world embracing. To take a little bit of time out for yourself feels weird, to put it very tamely. And when we get into this, the idea of product, nothing is ever finished because things are supposed to be finished before they even get out of the gate. And if we can view things as process rather than product, it allows us to take it from this static view to an evolving view. So with the work that you do now, I imagine that that is but one part of this tree that is growing. And I, I'm very excited to see one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I'm, I'm very excited for this. And it's, it's only going to go outwards and upwards. And in all of these ways that we probably can't even conceptualize of right now, because we're, we're looking at things through the lens of memory. And to know that you're allowing yourself to just have that moment to breathe is so powerful and so important. And I think that people who see this as well and maybe follow your work, it's important for them to know that to have room to breathe is as important as the act itself. Because life is like it breathes, you know, it's like us, we breathe in, we breathe out. When we breathe out, life is breathing in. So that can be when we're putting something out into the world. And then when life breathes out, we breathe it in. Because all creative acts are in somehow part response, part kicking the ball up the field a little further. Go, okay, this is cool. Let's go this way with it. And then we're over here and we explore this space and then that space. But we have to have time to explore what's going on around in the moment. And if it's just produce, 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 then there's no moment to just take it in. You know, it's, I have a question that I like to ask in terms of this. And if we look at words, words can be, one word written down can mean two totally different things when spoken. And for folks caught in that productivity cycle to their own detriment, I ask, are you content with your life or is your life about content? That's so okay. true. So if it's about content, that's okay, but is life there to serve the content or is the content that you wish to produce in the world an accurate reflection of the life that is being lived and content is part of that. And then that gives you that sense of contentment because then it's part of a more fulfilling paradigm of existence. So I, I'm just conscious that I'm kind of full steam ahead out into the ocean here of the weirdness. So I will rein it back a bit. I absolutely love that because I definitely live in a world of content. It's all about what can I produce? What can I put out there? And it really goes back to what you said. It's as human beings, a lot of times we're afraid to take up space. But as a human being, you are taking up space and you are allowed to. You have every right to be here. You deserve to be here. You deserve to have your voice heard. The world deserves to hear your voice. And a lot of times we are ta taught to stay silent, to be quiet, to not take up space and share too much and put out an image that we want people to see instead of being who we are. 
And we apologize for it. Like you said, that was something that I really, really struggled with in high school. I apologized for every single thing. My teacher would be like, you got a question wrong. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I never should have raised my hand. Like I was <laughs> terrified to take up space and to just be wrong sometimes. And that's as a human being, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get every calculus question right. That's okay. But to me, it became a constant cycle of being afraid to be seen. And that's why when I started my nonprofit, something that was so important to me was making sure that everyone was seen and heard because I was so afraid to be seen and be heard. That's so powerful. You know, it's, we only learn through asking questions and the idea of what is acceptable to be seen. I mean, even just saying that out loud sounds insane because everything is acceptable to be seen because everything is part of life and life being a spectrum. So that to have that in your intentionality with your nonprofit is so powerful because now if we look at like the landscape of the, the business world now, certain things that were like a, a featured point 20 or 30 years ago have become accepted, have become non-negotiable so, you know, equality a, a, a strategies, representation strategies, some kind of feedback loop to the environment and something that's progressive to support the overall cause of humanity within the company's ethos, whether that's a for-profit or non-profit or anything like that. There's, it's these decisions that are going to be creating that new paradigm as we move forward. So it's, it's so important what you're doing, really, really important. And again the idea of not being happy to you know not sorry again the idea of of not feeling comfortable to take up space and not get things wrong that's something that bugs me and one of the reasons i quit teaching was we were under instruction that you cannot fail anyone people aren't allowed to fail anymore because the way everything has become about money in the world and education is something that should not be run for profit or with vested interest. We should all have the rights to a balanced education that allows us to understand the world, what has gone into the world's story up until now so we can make better choices and also how to communicate with each other effectively, listen to each other, these kind of things. And education should be about displaying a reflective understanding of those concepts, a mastery of those concepts and the synthesis of independent and abstract thought, bringing together two abstract ideas, not ticking boxes, repeating things verbatim and all under the guise that you cannot fail because that filters down into the mindset. We would have, um, okay, so if you couldn't tell by my accent, I'm in the UK. <laughs> um, in, in the UK, the education system has been privatized kind of sneakily under the radar. And fund, funding is attached to performance. And the performance of a department means performance of the students. Therefore, the individual view of personal value as a learner. But really, the learners have become no more than statistics. So you've got this anxiety right there, right there from a young age. 
because you're running on the hamster wheel, you know, and you aren't allowed to stop and ask questions and explore ideas. It's about, do you understand this concept? As in, have you read the book enough times to just repeat it? Great, tick. And if something goes wrong, there isn't a space for the softer skills of resolution. There isn't socially focused resolution. There isn't um, restorative um, behavioral processes. Everything is very punitive um, and restrictive. So if someone gets something wrong, they're chastised. And if someone is continually chastised, then they will start to act out of response to that. There will be this push-pull relationship in the classroom. Maybe even at home, maybe like stuff that happens at home gets reflected in the classroom. And from there, if they keep that up, they then start to get isolated for 24 hours at a time from the other learners. So there's this real anxiety being driven into people because they feel that they're not good enough to get something right or just repeat a fact or a figure or repeat, comply, basically, not think, create, express. And this is dangerous because as we're moving forward, there's more of an emphasis on, I've got to get this right, I've got to get this right. This is my worldview, you know, not I'm here to learn and explore and do something different. And I think it's taking a lot of us to go get to these points of personal crises where we actually feel that it's okay to do something different. Exactly. exactly. Would you permit would you permit me to share a story? Yes, please. So on Clubhouse, there's certain things I don't feel I'm able to say because a lot of the time when we're moderating spaces, particularly in mental health and well-being, some of my story I don't feel it's appropriate to share, but I will share because I'm you know I, I don't believe that anyone has got this figured out I think we're all doing our best and the moment of change for me was in 2018 I had a nervous breakdown and I had to leave my teaching and music career which was my whole life from age 16 17 to 33 and it was purely because of that sense of just pressure because that whole sort of food chain process of funding performance value worthiness will just absolutely snap me like a twig and i'm not ashamed to say that because it's part of my story it's something i've gone through and come out the other side and i'm a lot wiser for it and it's why I do this work now. But, you know, when we're kind of doing story time and stuff, I don't really feel like I can share that because I want to be there and holding space and supportive. But I, the reason I share it is, I know you've shared a lot and I wanted to share that in as a kind of a like, this is some of my stuff, but also I really, really, really don't want other people to get to that point to feel that they have to, to tread their own path or actually know that it's okay to express their feelings or know that it's all right to look after their mental health 
before a crisis point, which is why this emotional language stuff really came in. Because if I had known the signs, if I knew now what I knew then, I mean, of course, it would be very different, but I wanted to put that experience to help others. Because I, thinking back on it, took me about two years to recover. And then by the time I did, and I was back on doing the guitar, so as a professional musician before, so doing back on stage, all of this, yes, wicked, we've done it. COVID, bam, no more gigs. So <laughs> it was like, okay, all right. So clearly life was wanting me to go down this other way. So I, I was thinking about that and I was like, well, you know, how could I maybe have caught myself? And I realized the signs were presenting for about 18 months. So there was a year and a half that I could have if I had been more aware of my own self and my inner workings and how to just be better communicative with myself and inner well-being. I could have maybe steered the car a little way so it wouldn't have been so disruptive, but I didn't, you know, straight over the edge. So that is my wish for others, that they are able to use my experience to know not to have the same experience but in a practical way you know first of all thank you so much for sharing that because that is absolutely so relatable a lot of people looking back you can see the signs and we a lot of us will get to that point where we just hit a breaking point because there is so much pressure on us today in the world today, no matter what industry you are in, no matter how old you are, there is so much pressure on you. And if we don't learn our emotional language, we don't learn how to connect with ourselves, how to process, how to release things, we are all doomed to follow that same path and to fall apart. And when you fall apart, how do you get back up? Because no one's teaching us that. And that's why it's so, so, I'm sorry, but just thank you so much for sharing that because it, I feel like that's going to help so many people. And it's a true example of a pain to purpose story. This, all we can do is just talk more, all of us, because the more that we understand that there's, you know, the, we're basically turning the volume down in a way, but also turning the volume up in another. So the conversation becomes more present, but we're dialing down the idea that somehow you are forever changed if you have a significant incident in that realm or you live with um, a, con you know, I don't want to use the word condition because it's, just, it's, just, it's not mental health, it's not physical health, it's just health, you know, it's just bloody health. And, if we can just be a droplet in that wave of change, then our lives will be important because we're helping just do that generational work. It's not going to be overnight. And one thing that you reminded me of as you were talking there about the pressure, how many, how often do we see on social media and these different spaces with people talking about creating impact? Or being impactful or I just want to bring a bit of value to the space because value and impact is the same thing um, if we are I, I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep things very in the rational domain so it's accessible. But one of the kind of beliefs that is shared in many different traditions is that the world that you see is a reflection of the of how you see yourself. So the outer world of how we view that. So say like I'm wearing for illustrative purposes, how I see the world is through this. So this, this is my experience, this is everything, this is all my memory. And that prevents me from seeing things clearly. And if we're so driven by the idea of impact, value, impact, 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 bam, 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 that ultimately comes back on ourselves. And the world's a peach and it bruises easily, you know? So if we want to have this peach, we're going to want to be soft with it then we want to be respectful of it because if we want to go crusading into the world with grand ideas and mechanisms of change and empowerment, I'm 100% there for that all day, every day. But what I would say is it's all right to be a ninja about it. It's all right to look for, zoom out and look at it as if it was a castle. We're not going to go charging up to the castle gate because they'll pour like something on us or we'll get arrows fired at us. But we could go around the castle and look for a crack in the wall and start to just gently kind of, you know, maybe it just needs us to put our hands on it. Maybe we just need to slip through there. But we don't need to arrive like a meteorite in the world with our big ideas. Because if the idea is on a certain level of resonance and people are holding that in their hearts, that's like turning a device up on that castle wall that shakes the rocks apart, basically. Exactly. And I have a question. Would you mind doing an example of the emotional language room so people can see why they need to join and how powerful you are? Okay, so there is something that's really important that we use in the emotional language room is there are two tools that are kind of the keys to what we use. The first one is a tool called the feelings wheel. And the feelings wheel is a free online tool, just a PDF. And it is all of the emotions, well, not all of them, the majority of the emotions expressed in a kind of pie chart thing. And in the center of that, we have like primary emotions like happy, sad, angry. And then within those pieces, the the spectrum comes out in another two layers. So for example, optimism is part of the happiness spectrum. Frustration is part of the anger spectrum. So we're trying to really pull that apart there and people could understand it's like, oh, do you know what? I'm frustrated and it's like, you're frustrated, you're angry. So what's the frustration and the anger connected to? How can we break that loop? And with the optimism, I will ask you the questions. Okay, and then I'll talk a bit about the meditation as well. We don't have to do the meditation, but we can talk a little bit about why the meditations work in the way that they do. Yeah. So, are you ready for the hot seat? I am ready. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about optimism. Question one, tell me two things that you're optimistic about in the world right now. The future. And 
I just want to say like the future and the direction, but those are kind of the same thing. No, no, that's good. The, 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 reason that, the, the reason that there is no wrong answers to this is because what comes up immediately, that's coming up from your subconscious. So we're just letting the subconscious speak. So the next question is, tell me one thing that you're optimistic about in your own life right now. I'm really optimistic about kind of the conversations I get to have and how they might impact somebody out there who feels alone or doesn't really know what they're going through and how one conversation may really impact them and just change something inside them that lets them know that they can get through this. I love that. That's so cool. Question three. If you were to give optimism a color, what would it be? Probably pink. Okay, I like that. And then question four. Can you remember the most significant time that you were optimistic about something? You were like, wow, you know, this is really... Possibilities were just were flashing through your mind and it was just pure optimism. How did you feel and what sensations did you have in the body, if you can remember any? I was 12 and I decided to start a blog called Inspiring My Generation, where I wanted to help people just live their life to the fullest. And I remember sitting down and writing all these quotes and sitting in front of the computer for hours, just typing them out and trying to make them look pretty. And I just felt so excited, like everything was jumping inside of me. And I just felt so warm and fuzzy. And I think that's the probably the happiest I've ever been in my life was that moment when I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to find a way to make this my life's mission and journey, which has kind of stayed true so far. That is incredible. And here we are as a result of that decision as well. Like that is, that is amazing. And the final question would be if you were if you wanted to be optimistic but you were feeling the opposite so like there's a situation where you feel like oh, i should be feeling optimistic about this but you're not and it's not because the idea is not you're not vibing with it but you just kind of can't quite get into the groove what would you do that's a really good question because i'm definitely a half um a glass half full kind of person or a half and em half empty kind of person where I see the bad and I'm like, where am I falling short? What's wrong? So when I kind of get into that moment, I kind of spin all my thoughts. I sit down, I write them all out and I'm like, how can I take this negative inside of me and turn it into a positive? That's really, really, really potent way to deal with that there because it's the, there's the, so we've reached the end of the questions. So obviously, in, if we were in the room, we would be on to the next person. We ask everyone the same questions. Because the, the, the rationale behind that is, first of all, you're thinking about the world. Then you're thinking about your personal world. Then you're creating something in an abstract. So it's like, what does... Because we could look into colour therapy and the you know, psychology of colour as well. Because if the, we, you know, we, we have all of this stuff programmed into us. So you're like, uh, optimism to me is pink. Okay, cool. So when we go into the meditation part, we would be working with that color. 
So everyone's colour is going to be different. Um, and then, of course, after the fact, you go, well, optimism is pink. What does pink mean? Let's have a look. And it's giving the person who's been having the questions asked to them some tools to get to know their own mind a bit better as well in a really sort of gentle way. Then when we're asking you to cast your mind to a situation you're most optimistic about something, because there's always like the penultimate question is always, when did you feel the most? So we're engaging with the memory. And then when we engage with the memory and the bodily sensations, we start to see that kind of circuit diagram of the inner emotional landscape. And then how could you reverse the flow of the circuit so it's flowing one way, like I'm feeling optimistic, and then I'm not feeling optimistic, but I want to go that way. So it's like, what would you do? So it's very practical. And then once in the, the clubhouse rooms, once we've done all of that, we go to the meditation part. And the meditation part always starts the same way with the body scan and then kind of bringing ourselves to work with the color, breathing in the color. And then when we're doing this visualization work, visualization is a very, very powerful thing because there is, okay, so there's no other way to explain this other than to go full on into the wizard land. So I'm just going to go there for the rational minded among the viewers. I apologize. So I'm an advanced law of attraction coach. And in the studies of the law of attraction, the grandfather of the modern practice is a guy called Neville Goddard. And he was most active in like the kind of 19, uh, I think like 1920s to 40s, if I'm not mistaken. And around that period, a lot of people were talking about the fourth dimension and this idea of how to connect with the world that you want, how to create that. Um, and some of the most successful and widely read self-help books like Think and Grow Rich, for example, that is a law of attraction manual right there from 1937. And this idea of visualizing something, visualizing that, working with that can make you connect with it. That's, you know, it works, it's proven. Athletes have better results when they visualize a positive outcome to the event they're competing in. So that's like level one. We start to work with the color that the person has chosen. So I never led meditations before Clubhouse. Never, never, never. And it just felt natural. So I started doing it and I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it differently. I want to create pockets for people in the room to fill in the blanks for themselves. So working with the color is one. Then the next part, we bring you into a space where you're connecting either with a significant memory from the past or a significant thing that you want to connect with in the future. Because now in 2021, the quantum sciences are part of the general conversation. People are kind of open to the idea that everything is happening all at once, past, present, future. So if we can connect with the past, we could connect with the future and really align that and bring it in and see it as having already happened. 
And when we do this work, there are the, the language that we want to do this work in is we use the language of the five senses because the five senses are the how we can program the subconscious. So when we go into the meditation, um, for example, I've got the optimism uh, meditation up here and then it's, it's a script. I write the script out in the afternoon. We do the room in the evening and I will ask, what does optimism look like? to you? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does it taste like? So for example, one of the, the techniques, the first time we did a meditation like this on platform um, was a room I was doing about the law of attraction specifically. And I did a meditation where we went into the future. And it was we entered into this environment. And it was like, okay, so just record what you can see. What can you see? What, you know, what's going on around you? Who is there? Where are you? When is this? What time of the day is it? What does it feel like? Okay, so what does the fabric of the clothes you're wearing feel like? What does the air feel like against your skin? Taking a deep breath, what can you smell? Are there any flowers? Is there perfume? Is is, is there smells related to the environment? You know, are you by the beach, for example? Can you smell the ocean? Are you in the garden? You can smell all the plants. What can you hear? So is there music playing? Because music can be incredibly evocative of memory. So the idea there is you could actually get someone to connect with what their power tunes are for that moment. Put it into a Spotify playlist. And then what can you taste? So can you taste anything in the air? Is there something there to eat or drink? You're starting to build these connections with this event, either from the past, so you can understand your bodily responses to it, or from the future. Because if we're working from the future, this is how I prefer to work, because I don't like to get too caught up in the past. The past we can kind of do little teaspoons of and untangle that web while actually working on the future because we understand what we want to connect with we understand what we have to kind of we need to integrate or alchemize to actually connect with where we want to go and by using the five senses we're giving the subconscious mind a language we're giving it information to see what to look out for because if we've got this whole kind of three-dimensional world that we've entered into again this is another like concept adapted from Neville Goddard bear in mind that's best part of a hundred years ago he would talk about imagining worlds one of his quotes is because he came from a Christian background and he got a lot of this mysticism from his own bible studies I'm not a follower of any religion myself but it's important that I mention this because one of his most famous quotes was God is the human imagination. Everything exists because we imagined it. Someone imagined Zoom, so they made Zoom. Someone imagined laptop, so a laptop was made. And someone imagined a jumper like this, so that was made. Everything that is around us in our environment at one point was imagined. I have this picture, the Turner painting, one of my favorite paintings behind me, he imagined the rendering of that image, so therefore it exists. So Neville Goddard's stance was, well, if you can imagine it, then it can happen. So 
by taking this approach of working with the five senses in these meditations, we start to program the subconscious. And in terms of like my, my own work with clients and stuff, we take that a fair few steps further by actually like looking at how to break that down. How do we actually get you to align with that over a consistent period of time? Keep refining, refining, refining. You have a pretty good idea of what the future looks like and what you want to create. Because something that is a real struggle for all of us is if you imagine that our lives were movies, are we the starring role in our own movie or are we the supporting actor or actress in our own movie? If we're not in the starring role, then something's not quite happening to our benefit there. So all of this comes back to being the lead in your own movie of your life. So if you're starring in it, directing it, writing it, what's it gonna be like? You've got the power to create that and so much of it comes back to understanding how to work with the emotions and the five senses. So I could go on for a lot longer about this, but I'm very conscious that that was about 15 minutes of spiel there. So I could listen to you talk forever, but we are starting to run out of time. Alistair, you are everything and more. I just, every time I talk to you, like I said, so much clarity, so much inspiration. You are just an absolute blessing and delight. And I am so, so happy that you joined me for this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful. You are a light in this world, my friend, to keep doing what you are doing and do as much of it as you can. <laughs>